0: We're working our way through First Thessalonians. You should find an outline in your bulletin. There are printed messages at both exits. I think this morning they have a blue cover, so feel free to get up and get one now or later if you like. And uh, those are on the church um, website. And there's a password on the front of the bulletin that tells you how to access those if you have an iPad or phone or something you want to track with the printed message. And the last uh, 24 years' worth are on the website as well. Um, if you're new, we just kind of work through the Bible, verse by verse, in different places. And uh, so now we come to 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 1 and 2. Paul writes this, Finally then, brethren, We request and exhort you in the Lord Jesus that as you receive from us instruction as to how you ought to walk and please God, just as you actually do walk, that you excel still more, for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus." Some of you who are younger in your faith may be kind of like the young boy that the late Pastor Ray Stedman told about. Stedman asked this boy, How old are you? And the boy requite, replied very quickly, I'm 12, going on 13, soon be 14. He wanted to grow. And you know when you're younger in your faith there's a lot of eagerness and it's always exciting to see a young Christian who just wants to jump in and and grow in the Lord. But honestly the longer we're Christians the more we're prone to kind of even out maybe you would say uh, to drift into sort of a humdrum routine spiritual life. It's not that we're sinning or anything like that, but we lose that freshness of, of what, in Revelation there with the church in Ephesus, is called that first love for the Lord. Now, of course, the same thing can happen in our marriages, and it's obvious no one can maintain the euphoria we all felt when we first fell in love. We were kind of floating six inches off the, the ground for a while. And then after the honeymoon is over, we settle into reality and, and life's problems and all of that and, and so on. But even then, we shouldn't drift into just a routine marriage, you know, where you run through the things. You've got to keep the romance alive. And as all of us who have been married for a while know, that takes some work and some effort Uh, Now, in 1 Thessalonians 4, we're shifting in the book to what might be called the instructional or the ethical section of the book where Paul now is going to give some uh, practical uh, matters for application. He has shown them very extensively how much he cares for them. We have seen that. Um, He is concerned for their spiritual stability because they're going through persecution. And Paul is worried that perhaps they have fallen away or given up the faith during that. And so now he, uh, Timothy has come back with a good report. Paul is excited to hear that they still long to see him as he longs to see them and that they are going on in the Lord. But Timothy brought back a few concerns as well. And so Paul's going to address those now. Um, He he is going to address, as we'll see next time uh, after I'm back from vacation, moral purity in verses 3 through 8. Uh, He touches on love of the brethren and the need to work for a living, verses 9 through 12. Then he launches into a lengthy section that goes through chapter 5, verse 11 on the Lord's return and things about the end times. And then he'll uh, conclude the letter with some practical matters about conduct in the church. But in our text, what he's doing is introducing all of these matters with a, a general exhortation to continue growing in the Lord. And we learn in our text specifically that to grow in your walk with the Lord, uh, first seek to please him by learning and obeying his commandments. When he says finally then, he's signaling a transition to a new section of the letter. He doesn't mean I'm almost through like some preachers who say finally and then they go on for 30 minutes. Uh, It just means we're shifting gears now to this new section. Probably he's picking up, uh, the word then means therefore, so he's picking up what went before, probably all of chapters 2 and 3, but specifically uh, chapter 3, verses 10 through 13, where um, he wants to provide what is, or complete what is lacking in their faith, and uh, the verses that we're going to look at relate to what he set up. Like, for example, in 3.12, he wants them to increase and abound in love for one another. He'll touch on that in chapter 4, verses 9 through 12. He prays that he wants their hearts in verse, uh, chapter 3, verse 13, their hearts to be established without blame in holiness before God. And he's going to deal with holiness in verses 3 through 8. And then he says, at the coming of our Lord Jesus. And he'll deal with that in the rest of chapter 4 and and part of chapter 5. John Stott, in his commentary, argues this. One of the great weaknesses of contemporary evangelical Christianity is our comparative neglect of Christian ethics. In both our teaching and our practice. Now as you read through chapters 4 and 5, it's obvious Paul did not neglect teaching ethics to these new believers. Um, He uh, keeps referring back to things he has taught. For example, in verse 1, he says, uh, How you receive from us instruction is how you ought to walk and please God. So he's just reviewing what he already taught them. And then in verse 2, he reminds them, you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus. So, again, this is all a review. Then when he deals with Christian sexual ethics, down in verse 6, he says, just as we also told you before and solemnly warned you. So, this is, again, things Paul had taught them. And remember, he had only been with them... Oh, a minimum of three, prob- three weeks, probably more like six months, but he jammed a lot of teaching into that time. Down in verse 11 of chapter 4 regarding uh, working for a living, he adds, just as we commanded you. And then in chapter 5, he's dealing with the need for us to be alert and watchful for the Lord's coming. And he says, you have no need of anything to be written to you, because he had already taught them on these things. And so uh, he had taught them a lot about Christian ethics. And in these first two verses, uh, John Stott again adds, they are noteworthy for two things. Number one, their authoritative tone. And number two, he says, their emphasis on pleasing God as the basis for uh, Christian ethical behavior. Five things I want to point out this morning from verses 1 and 2 that you should have there on your outline. First of all, to walk in a way that is pleasing to God, you must be in the Lord Jesus through believing the gospel. In verse 1, finally then, brethren, we request and exhort you, and then notice, in the Lord Jesus... The fact that he calls them brethren, or you could translate it brothers and sisters, means that these people have experienced the new birth. They are now a part of the family of God because the Spirit of God has imparted new life to them uh, through uh, their faith in Christ. Um, When we believe in Christ, the Bible says that the Spirit of God places us into the body of Christ. And we become members of one another, members of the same family. But the key is we are in Christ. And that's a favorite phrase of Paul that he uses many, many times in his writings. But it's in that sphere, to those who are in that sphere, that he's now going to give this exhortation. I emphasize this because I find that many Christians do not understand that when someone prays the sinner's prayer, maybe you share the evangelism explosion or the four spiritual laws, and they pray the prayer. Or when uh, somebody makes a decision to receive Christ, they go forward at a church or an evangelistic meeting or something that does not necessarily guarantee that they are born again. And I hear these kind of things often from Christian parents, where they have a teenager or a young adult child, and the child is living as a pagan rebel against God. They are just in the world, maybe into drugs, into uh, sexual immorality, all sorts of things. But the parents will tell me, oh, but he's a Christian, and I'll say, well, how, how do you know that? Well, because uh, he made a decision at vacation Bible school when he was a child. Or he made a decision at camp. Or, you know, he went forward at a, at a rally or something like that. Um, but there is very little, if any, evidence, or has there ever been, that God has changed that young person's heart. And the new birth means God imparts new life and there is necessarily a change of heart when that happens. It, it can be summed up by the single word repentance. We repent when God changes our heart. We turn from idols to God as the Thessalonians had done. And... Your desires are different when God invades your life. Now, granted, it's a process. It's a lifelong process. But whereas before God, eh, I don't care about God. Now you love God and you want to know him. Uh, whereas before the Bible, oh, that's a boring book, hard to understand. Now it's food for your soul. And and granted, there's hard things there, but you're feeding on the word of God because you have a desire to know God. Uh, you hate your sin, and you strive to turn from it and to grow, to be more like Jesus Christ. And you seek now to obey God out of thankfulness because of what he has done for saving your soul. So there is evidence of new life, just like when you have a little baby. If that baby is stillborn, ah, that's a heavy moment. And you you know it instantly, that child is not alive. But if there's life, then you rejoice and you see there's life there. Yes, it has to grow, but there is life there. And that makes all the difference. And the new birth is God imparting life to a dead sinner. And we need to get that in our minds. Is there evidence of it? Now... Paul's instruction here, then, applies only to those who are in the Lord Jesus, as he says there in verse 1. And they're in the Lord Jesus, and the evidence of that is they're repenting. They did repent, but they go on repenting. They believe, but they go on believing in Jesus Christ. And what that does is it changes the commands that we're going to see in chapters 4 and 5 from being burdensome to being a blessing. When you're outside of Christ, the commands of God are a burden. Oh man, he's taking all my fun away. When you're in Christ, you realize these are God's word from a loving and caring father who wants the best for me. And Jesus' yoke is not heavy. His burden is light. And so it changes your motivation. Rather than striving to earn God's favor. Now you want to please him because he has given you favor as a free gift in Christ, as his mercy. It's kind of the difference. Suppose a a man who is single hires a maid to do his laundry and clean his house and cook his meals and all of that. She does it as a job. But then they fall in love, and he marries her. And now she does the same thing, maybe without pay, But she does it as a delight because she loves her husband. You see the difference? It's all the motivation of love that comes because of that relationship with Jesus Christ. And so that's what we're talking about. To walk in a way pleasing to God, you have to begin by being in Christ. And that comes through the new birth and uh, the trusting in Christ and repenting of our sin. The second thing I want to point out here in our text is that the Christian life, then, is a walk. It's described as a walk. Uh, If you don't have a translation that says walk, either in the text or in the margin, you need a more literal translation. Uh, That's the gripe I have sometimes with the NIV. It's an equivalence translation, not a literal one. And Paul uses the word walk. And that's a very descriptive and helpful um, kind of thing to think about. In the first place, it's not a leap. You know, it's not a quick. You get from here to there instantly. It's kind of gradual, step by step by step. Not real spectacular, but if you keep moving in the same direction, you'll get there. And that tells us again that the Christian life is a process it's it's a lifelong walk with god and it takes time to grow in the lord also paul doesn't say the christian life is an effortless flight you know where you soar above all the problems that are below and you just are untouched by them and sometimes i've heard christian life teachers there's kind of a whole wing of the christian church That teaches that the Christian life should be effortless. When you learn the secret of letting go and letting God, you stop striving. You've heard that kind of teaching? Yeah, you just stop striving. And, uh, you know, you look at those birds at the Grand Canyon. Are they working? No. They're just soaring on the current. And it's effortless. And so, if you're striving against sin, or you're wrestling with discouragement, you haven't learned the secret. You haven't learned the secret. Something must be wrong. You must not be trusting. You must not be resting. One time, over 40 years ago, Marla and I went to hear a man who taught in this vein. And in his message, he indicated that every time in the morning when he met with the Lord... It was pure delight. He just got riches out of God's Word. And I thought to myself, well, that's not my experience. So I went up to him afterwards and I said, Dr. So-and-so, I won't mention his name. I said, don't you ever have times when you come away from God's Word and it was kind of dry or it was difficult or you didn't understand it? And he wagged his finger, literally, under my nose, and he said, Young man, if you expect nothing from God, you will get it every time. You know, the problem was I wasn't trusting God. I wasn't resting in him, and I didn't know the secret. Well, 40-some years later, I'm here to say, I think I'm right, and he was wrong. Uh, It is sometimes there is effort involved in walking, uh, it isn't effortless. Last Monday, Marla and I started at the snowball parking lot at 9,500 feet, and we climbed to the top of Humphreys Peak at 12,633. And I assure you that that walk involved a lot of effort. It is not easy. But if you keep going in that direction on the trail, eventually you get there. And we get on top, and there are these ravens just floating, you know. And they're diving, and they're having all kinds of fun. And I thought, man, I would like to be a raven and just fly to the bottom. But I realized what went up has to go down. And now I reverse it, and there is a long, long walk down. And there are many rocks on that trail, and you got to watch every step, or you could twist an ankle. And it's hard. It's hard. But that's the only way you get up there, and that's the only way you get down is step by step by step, walking. Now, if you're walking with someone, there's an opportunity to get to know that person as you talk, as long as the trail isn't too steep, and um, you can ask for advice and so on. And as we walk with God, we hear God's voice through his word. That's how God speaks to us. And gives us the counsel we need. And then we share our hearts with God in prayer. And there is that fellowship as we walk with him daily. Spending time alone with God. uh, Praying about things. uh, Seeing how his word applies to our lives. Now, the destination, the goal of our walk is not a mountaintop. Where we again, sometimes it's pictured once you get there. It's like... Heaven on earth. Well, heaven isn't on earth. It's in heaven. And uh, the destination is conformity to Jesus Christ. And that sometimes comes through very hard trials. Very hard trials. But that's the goal. We grow to become more like him in his character qualities. Paul in Galatians 5 says that we are to walk by the Spirit so that we don't carry out the desire of the flesh. And then he goes on and says that if we walk by the Spirit, we'll develop the fruit of the Spirit, which is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Uh, and another place, Colossians 2.6, Paul says, Therefore... As you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in him. You received him by grace through faith, you walk in him by grace through faith, but it's a walk. And in the book of Ephesians, more than any other place, Paul uses that walk metaphor over and over. He says in Ephesians 2.10, We are to walk in the good works which God prepared for us beforehand. In chapter 4, verse 1, he says, We are to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which we have been called. Then negatively in four seventeen and 18, he says, We are not to walk as the Gentiles, meaning unbelievers, also walk in the futility of their mind, being darkened in their understanding, um, excluded from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because of the hardness of their heart. And then he goes on and says, rather in Ephesians 5.2, we are to walk in love, just as Christ also loved you. And then he explains in 5.8 through 10, we are to walk as children of light. And then, for the fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness and truth. And this ties into our text, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord what is pleasing to the Lord. And then finally in Ephesians five fifteen and 16, he says, be careful how you walk, not as unwise men, but as wise, making the most of the opportunity because the days are evil. Now, occasionally, Paul uses the analogy of the Christian life as a run. You're running in a race. And there are certainly useful um, Lessons to learn from that metaphor as well, but more often, far more often, he pictures it as this step by step by step, not very fast, not very spectacular uh, process, but if you do it and you've got a goal, you will eventually get there as long as you stay on the path. And so the question you need to ask is, you know, are you walking with God? Are you doing that every day? Time with God, time in his word, prayer, walk, walk, walk with the Lord. A third thing in our text is that if you're in the Lord Jesus, it's necessary to walk in a manner pleasing to him. Verse 1 again of chapter 4, you received instruction from us as to how you ought to walk and please God. The word ought is a Greek word that means it is necessary, or it means one must. The lexicon says it refers to inner necessity or the compulsion of duty. It means this, we're not free to decide how we should live as Christians. Uh, We have been bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ, We are now his possession, we are his slaves, and we are not our own. And so we are under obligation to live in a way with our lives that glorifies and pleases God. I read several years ago a popular book on the Christian life that pits pleasing God against trusting God. And it says you have to choose one or the other as your primary and ultimate motive in your life, but you can't choose both. And so it draws, uh, it, it portrays pleasing God as this life of striving to earn his approval, and that's what you're not supposed to do. Instead, you're supposed to trust God. Well, that's a false dichotomy and an unhelpful one. The Bible presents both. And what turns pleasing God into not a thing of trying to earn his favor is the grace of God. When you realize God gave us the whole thing in Christ as a free gift. And then you want to please God because of what he's done for you. And so trusting God and pleasing God are not in competition. They are complementary. Let me illustrate it this way. Now picture a child who's living in the squalor of an orphanage in a third world country. They don't have adequate funding, and so the child is malnourished and has some serious health problems that they can't address, and he's dirty and doesn't have adequate care, so he's not a, a Gerber baby kind of kid. He's He's got real needs. And an American couple who are unable to have children of their own show up and they're well-to-do and they walk through the orphanage and they pick that little baby and they bring him home and they give him all the medical care he needs and they feed him well and he begins to thrive and grow and as a, a, a younger child then he learns what his parents rescued him from. Maybe they show him pictures of the orphanage and what he looked like then. And he realizes, wow, not due to anything in me, but simply because they chose me and they love me, my life now is radically different than it would have been had I stayed in that orphanage. And you see, now hopefully that child wants To please his parents, not to earn their favor, he's got it, but because he received their their favor. And that's how we uh, should do as Christians. God showed us unmerited favor in Christ. Wow, he rescued us from destruction and now we should want to please him. Now that begins on the heart or the thought level. And here's where the battle comes. Remember, Jesus often hit the Pharisees. Outwardly, you would have said, wow, look at those guys. They're impressive. I mean, to put it in modern terms, every time the church doors open, they're here. You know? And they serve. They're on the board. And they're they're doing the work. But God looked on the heart. And he said, no, this people honors me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. And God looks on the heart. We see that in the Sermon on the Mount where Jesus says to us, Guys, guys, if you're looking with women with lust, you've already committed adultery with her in your heart. You've got to deal with the heart. In Romans 8, 8, Paul says this, Those who are in the flesh, meaning unbelievers, cannot please God. So to please God, you have to have experienced the new birth, as I explained a moment ago, uh, where God changes your heart, and then the battle is on the heart level for inner purity. And we'll look at that in, a, in our next study. In 2 Corinthians five nine, Paul said this, Therefore, we also have as our ambition, whether at home or absent, to be pleasing to him, What Paul means in the context is, in view of this life and in view of the fact that life is very short and someday soon I'm going to stand before God for judgment, everything I do is motivated by wanting to please Him. That was Paul's aim, and that should be our aim as well. So, first of all then, to walk in a way that's pleasing to the Lord, you have to have experienced the new birth. That's where it begins. And then it's a walk, step by step by step, and it's a walk... Motivated by his grace to want to please him. Fourthly, even when you are walking in a manner pleasing to the Lord, Paul shows us there's always room for growth. He, he says to the Thessalonians, uh, you, you do actually walk that way. But then he adds, he wants them to excel still more. Excel still more. And that means you never get to a place where you can say, I've arrived spiritually I am now perfectly mature. I am sinless, you know, and I've won every victory there is to win. And again, you, you meet the odd Christian who says they are sinlessly perfect. Um, yeah, just uh, provoke them a little and see how sinlessly perfect they are. But it's always, there's always room for growth, especially in Humility. The prophet Hosea, chapter 6, verse 3, exhorted, so let us know, let us press on to know the Lord. And Paul picks up on that verse and applies it to himself in uh, Philippians 3. We sang the song about that I may know him. and That's from earlier in Philippians 3. And then he goes on and he adds in verses 12 through 14, not that I've already obtained it, Or have already become perfect. But I press on. So that I may lay hold of that for which I was laid hold of by Christ Jesus. Brethren, I don't regard myself as having attained uh, or having laid hold of it yet. But one thing I do. Forgetting what lies behind. Reaching forward to what lies ahead. I press on toward the goal of the prize of the upward call of God in Christ Jesus. Here's the amazing thing. Paul wrote that 25 years after becoming a Christian. Now, this is the Apostle Paul who, you know, excels all of us in his zeal. 25 years into it, he says, I'm not there, folks. I'm still growing, still pressing on. And what that says to me is this. If you're stagnant, or you're in a rut spiritually, do whatever you got to do to get out of the rut and get back on the path and and start growing again. It's a lifelong process. And we all have room to grow. It may involve rooting out secret sins. Nobody knows about them but you and the Lord. You got to deal with those. It may involve getting right in a relationship where there's bitterness and you need to forgive and seek restoration. It may involve a commitment to get up a little earlier in the morning and uh, spend a few minutes in the Word and prayer with the Lord. Uh, It may involve getting a good book on the spiritual life and reading it prayerfully and seeing how it applies to you, joining a small group, many, many things you can do. But my point is, if you don't change something... Things won't change. You've got to do what it takes to begin growing again in the Lord. And then finally, notice that the way we excel still more in our walk with God is to learn and obey his commandments. This is verse 2. After saying, I want you to excel still more, then Paul says, "...for you know what commandments we gave you by the authority of the Lord Jesus." He says that to make it clear, I'm not making this up, folks. I'm just the channel. I'm the weatherman, and I'm reporting what exists. The Lord makes the weather, the weatherman just reports it. Well, the Lord gives the commands, Paul's just the channel, and it is through the Lord Jesus, literally, when he says, by the authority of the Lord Jesus, the Greek says, through the Lord Jesus. He, he repeats that at the end of his moral commandments that we'll see in verse 8. When he says, so he who rejects this is not rejecting man, but the God who gives his Holy Spirit to you. Just four things I want to point out quickly here about verse 2. First of all, to obey God's commandments, we have to first know them. Now Paul says, I've already told you many of these things, you already know them but we have the commandments of God written in his word. As I understand it, and this is a very difficult area for study, we are not under all of the commandments that are in the Old Testament. The Old Covenant has passed away. says in the book of Hebrews, chapter 8, it was superseded by the New Covenant. Um, At the same time, in the New Covenant, the New Testament... Nine of the Ten Commandments are repeated. So they are applicable today. The only one that's not repeated is the Sabbath. And there is division among Christians. There are many who think that Sunday is now the Christian Sabbath and you must keep the Sabbath on Sunday. Ironically, I've read their books and uh, observed them. They do not keep the Sabbath as the Old Testament commands the Jews to keep it. you know, and in my experience, most of them become very legalistic. My understanding is this the Old Testament Sabbath was fulfilled in Christ, who is our Sabbath rest, Hebrews 4. And the Bible does instruct us in Hebrews 10 don't neglect gathering together, as some are prone to do. So the Lord's Day, Sunday, is the day to gather together as God's people for worship, for instruction, for fellowship with the people of God, but that's it. And Paul, when he writes to Gentile churches, says, some observe one day, some observe another, let each one do what is in his own heart. He wouldn't have said that if we're under the Sabbath now. He would have said, you Gentiles need to understand, and he would have laid out the commands. And he he doesn't do that. In fact, he laments that some seem to be focusing on observing days and seasons and months and years and all of that. So that is debatable, but that, in a very quick nutshell, is my understanding. I have a sermon from Genesis chapter 2 on that if you want more. But when it comes to the commandments of God, we have a very simple way to remember them. Jesus said there's two great commandments that sum up everything. Love God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. Now, how does that work out? Well, there are many, many specifics in the New Testament. How do you love your neighbor as yourself? Ephesians 4.29 says, don't let any rotten word come out of your mouth, but only a word that's good to build up the other person according to the need of the moment that it might give grace to those who hear. That's one way To love your neighbor. Many, many other ways and so on that we learn. But we have to learn them if we're going to obey them. Secondly, to obey God's commandments is not legalism. It's the response to his grace. And I add that because whenever I teach that we need to obey God's commandments, (coughs) invariably someone thinks, and a few people sometimes tell me, that's legalism. But we're under grace. Now, if you thought that when I mentioned obedience to God's commands, you don't understand either legalism or grace. Because obedience is not legalism. Paul wrote in Titus 2, 11 and 12, For the grace of God has appeared. And here's what the grace of God does. Bringing salvation to all men, meaning to all who believe, instructing us to deny ungodliness and worldly desires and to live sensibly, righteously, and godly in the present age. So grace teaches us to obey God. And if you don't understand that, you don't understand God's grace. Freedom in Christ is not freedom to lay back and do whatever feels good. Freedom in Christ is freedom not to sin. Outside of Christ, you're bound to sin. In Christ, you're free not to sin as you obey him. So I hope you understand that. And uh, I've done a number of messages on legalism and what it is, so can't develop more now. A third thing to note is that God's commandments, then, are not helpful hints for happy living. They're orders that we need to follow, to be obeyed. Uh, Paul has said, I'm exhorting you through the Lord Jesus, and that emphasizes the Lord's authority. When he says, you know what commandments we gave you, the word in Greek refers to the transmitted orders of a military commander. And if you've served in the military, you know what that means. You don't disobey an order from on high. You may not understand it, You have to trust the commander knows what's going on, and I don't. Seems like a screwy command, but he's the general, and I'm the private, and I got to obey. I have to obey. Now, in our case, the Bible's commandments come from the all-wise, all-knowing creator of heaven and earth who has our good in mind. And so, my point is, though, these aren't optional suggestions These are commands that God gives us for how to have victory over our enemy who wants to destroy us through sin. And so we should obey them cheerfully. And then finally, note that God's commands come from him and are not culturally relative. Uh, Paul didn't make them up, and they only apply to that day and age. They come to us, he says, from the Lord Jesus and Jesus is the truth, and he speaks the truth. And he, he doesn't vary the truth. Well, oh, you live in America. Let me change that for you. Or you, you live in this day and age. Let me change it. No, they're transcultural, trans time. They exist forever. Years ago, when I grew up, 50 years ago, there would not have been a single Christian who would have argued that homosexual behavior was okay for Christians, or anyone for that matter, as long as the two partners love one another. Today, there are many professing evangelicals, especially those under 30, according to polls, who have bought into the cultural wave that is sweeping over America that says, oh, well, it's okay. It's not okay. There's not a single verse in the Bible that supports homosexuality. None. They all are against it. Same thing with having sex outside of marriage. Many young people today in churches, evangelical churches, think, well, that's okay. You know, we're in love. We're going to get married. And so it doesn't matter. And they engage in what the Bible calls fornication. It's not okay. It's never been okay. It never will be okay in God's standards. And what I'm getting at is this. We have to come to the standard. Jesus said in John 17, 17, sanctify. That means set them apart as holy in the truth. And then he adds, your word is truth. And so the Bible is our unchanging standard. And my point is, if we start bending the Bible to fit in with the waves of culture and the shifting sands of culture, we're all over the charts. And we never know what is right and wrong. And so we won't please God, we won't further his kingdom and his righteousness if we don't obey his commands, and his commands are countercultural. We'll see that next time when we get into the sexual commands that Paul deals with here. It was countercultural in Paul's day. It's countercultural in our day, but it's the word of God. Now, my main concern in this message is for any of you who may be just kind of spiritually apathetic as a Christian and you're not growing. I want to stir you up to, to grow, not to become routine, Not just to cruise along in your Christian life, but to kind of shake you out of the doldrums and say, come on, press on to know the Lord. There's room to grow wherever you're at in the Lord. And whatever it takes to get back on the path of pleasing God and obeying God and growing in him, do it. And so get into the word of God every day and and comb it for application. God, how does this apply to my heart? And I just conclude with this verse from 1 John 5.3. This is the love of God. Here's how you know you love God. If we keep his commandments, and his commandments are not burdensome. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. It gives us a place to stand in a very, very shifting culture that we live in. Thank you that it's our anchor, it's our rock, it's our compass to guide us through the fog of this world. I would ask, Lord, if any are here, outside of Christ, maybe they know the language, they were raised in the church, but they've never experienced a change of heart through the new birth, that you would be pleased to invade their lives. Open their eyes to their need for Christ. Help them to trust in you. I would ask, Lord, for us who know you, maybe we've kind of drifted into a ho-hum walk with you, that you would stir us up again and again and again to press on, to keep walking, keep pleasing, keep obeying, keep growing in you. And we ask it that you would form Christ in us, to the praise of the glory of your grace. Amen.